Hello, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with researchers Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabri to discuss deception and their new book, Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. Dan and Chris are the authors of the 2010 New York Times bestseller, The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us, which has been translated into 20 languages. They have collaborated on research for more than 25 years, and they jointly received the 2004 Ig Nobel Prize, given for research that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. They have contributed to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Slate, and other national publications, and their work has appeared in science museums worldwide. Daniel is currently a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois, where he heads the Visual Cognition Laboratory, while Christopher has taught at Union College and Harvard University and is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science. One of the main takeaways from my discussion with Dan and Chris was that being fooled is a natural phenomenon that we can expect given the design and purpose of the human mind. When our brains are operating on autopilot, which is likely more often than we think, we tend to process the world in a very quick and shallow manner. And this makes all of us, not just the gullible, vulnerable to deception. Another takeaway I had was that we need to cultivate our awareness of the hidden world of influence that is infused in many of our daily activities. Whether we're browsing articles on the internet or out shopping for a new car, there are so many ways that we are being targeted or nudged to elicit a certain outcome. By learning to slow down our thinking and increase our skepticism, we can become better consumers of information and reduce the likelihood of falling prey to the various types of scams and cons that try to exploit our default thinking patterns. If you're the type of person that thinks they could never be fooled, I hope you listen to this episode with an open mind and consider that confidence may be covering up some blind spots in your judgment. Enjoy. Okay, today I am joined by Daniel Simons, as well as Christopher Chabri. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, it's great to be on. Uh, so you guys are the uh, authors of a new book called Nobody's Fool, uh, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. So uh, the book is about uh, primarily deception uh, as soon as I, I really enjoyed reading it, uh, as, as soon as I got into that first chapter, I was reminded of a quote by one of my previous guests, uh, Brian Brushwood, who's a magician and author. Uh, and he said, uh, cons don't fool us. 
because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. And your book sort of addresses this idea in a great deal of depth. So we're going to get into uh, and some of these large-scale examples of scams and cons and fraud. Uh, but why don't we start by having you talk a little bit about some situations that the average person might encounter during a typical day where they might be uh, the victim of deception or, or where these spots are on a typical day where you might uh, experience someone trying to fool you? That's an interesting question. Uh, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that we're not going to be aware of the times we've often been deceived on a minor way, right? So if if we get fooled and we end up spending a little more than we were supposed to, you're checking out from the grocery store and the price that scans is different than the one that was on the shelf, the vast majority of time we'll never notice that, right? And we won't be aware of having been deceived in a minor way, right? Um, grand cons of the sort that you see in the movies and in you know podcast series and Netflix shows, those are pretty rare, right? And most of us are never going to be a victim of a giant con, right? right. Uh, Ocean's Eleven doesn't happen in day-to-day -day life. Um, so they're really entertaining sorts of things to watch, but they're not necessarily so informative about our day-to-day -day experiences. Um, we can get deceived in all kinds of contexts, right? You can uh, have somebody deceive you about something you're trying to buy or something you're going to invest in. Or um, if you like going to magic shows, you're you're paying to be deceived by professionals. So um, there are lots of contexts in which we're deceived a lot, and many of them just don't matter that much, which is, I think, a really important thing to keep in mind is that most of the time we're not being deceived. It's only in those rare cases when it actually really matters in a consequential way that we should be paying much more attention. I think there are, there are a lot of um, little things that happen that we don't even realize are actually deceptions every day, right? So, you know, on Twitter, you'll see a lot of tweets, you know, that uh, trying to convince you of something that they don't have any evidence for, or might even, they, they might even know is false. Um, uh, and um, you might get a call, you know, offering to extend your car warranty or sort of pretending maybe to be your car dealer or the person who sold you the car saying, hey, your warranty has expired. You need to call to do this. And in fact, it's a totally third party company trying to get you to probably overpay for some warranty you don't need. Um, you know, there's the ubiquitous phishing emails telling us we need to, you know, reset our password or, you know, so there's actually a lot of little cons floating by us, I think, all the time. We may not even notice them sometimes because a we really you know well our spam filter catches you know a bunch of them right but also we're not really the kind of people who respond to those sort of things um they're they're aimed at other people like people who don't read emails closely you know right. who don't know um or they're things we don't actually recognize as attempts to deceive us or, or misinform us so a lot of what people share on social media is stuff that is actually misinformation and they don't even realize that it's misinformation they shared it because they believed it and it sounded nice to them. And then they shared it with their friends and, you know, and so on. But, but of course, none of that is Ocean's Eleven either. Like Dan's completely right. Like the grand cons, we can learn a lot from them, but they probably aren't like, you know, people are not robbing my vault below my casino like every day, you know? So um, that, yeah. they're in, in, I think the way we look at it is like, we can analyze these big audacious scams in order to figure out, you know, a lot of things about how these scams work that 
are actually useful for other, you know, for, for other purposes, uh, avoiding being deceived uh, in other ways. And deception is broader than just the grand con, right? So the grand con, you have somebody who's deliberately trying to target marks and take them in, right? But when you share something on social media because it sounds right to you, you're actually deceiving other people, right? You don't know you're doing it. You're not trying to fool them. You're passing along something that you think is right. But if it's not true, then you're actually contributing to deception. You're not conning anybody. You're not trying to bilk them, but you're still deceiving in a way. Let's let's stay on this uh, idea of social media for a moment and consuming news. Um, I I wonder if, if there is a difference between being fooled versus you know sort of a denial. Um, and if you would draw that distinction, you know, I start thinking of sort of the uh, the teams, the political teams that that form and. Uh, you know, just let's just take, for example, uh, Trump or Elon Musk. You know, these are public figures that have massive followings. And oftentimes you'll see people on the other side of the political spectrum addressing supporters of these figures and saying, uh, you guys are being duped, right? Uh, you these 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 people don't mean what they say. You know, you're you're being fooled. They're accusing the supporters of being fooled. But I, I often feel like there's a it's a fun, there's a fundamental difference between, you know, finding out someone conned you out of money where you're you're going to be really angry that someone conned you out of money versus finding out that someone you support was a little deceptive. It almost feels like your first instinct isn't to be angry. It's to sort of sweep it under the rug. Right. So do you think there's is there a difference between being fooled and, and this sort of uh, this sort of denial? I, I think there I think there is a distinction that you're making. I think it's a reasonable distinction. But I often think we don't necessarily sweep it under the rug. We figure out ways to justify it as actually being true instead of deceptive um, or to or to justify it as being um, uh, OK in a grander scheme of things. Right. Like, sure, you know, so and so lied about this, that and the other thing. But it was to achieve a goal that was that was worthy or something like that. So we have various mechanisms of, I think, rationalizing the idea that either we weren't deceived at all, we were deceived, but it's okay, you know, or yeah, they deceived us, but, you know, they're still better than the other guy, right? Like, you know, like, um, so th there, are, there are lots of different ways we can we, we can do that. And that's definitely different than I gave all my money to Bernie Madoff and, you know, he just like paid it off, paid it out to somebody else, you know, to, you know, to pay them out. Those are different things. I agree with you, but I think, um, I think we would both argue that there's a lot of commonality there between what's what's going on, because, um, you know, when people misinform us, they are often playing on many of the same um, cognitive habits and mechanisms that we rely on uh, in uh, situations where we can get conned in a massive way and in and in, in everyday life, um, you know, they work quite well for us, but there are still things that get taken advantage of by politicians, marketers, you know, anyone who's really looking to build a lot of influence is using, you know, some of those same, um, some of those same mechanisms to do so. Yeah. One of them is, is the uh, principle that we talk about as commitment, right? That we tend to uh, make strong assumptions and then not always to check those assumptions. And that certainly happens in political polarization, right? You you have an assumption that your side is the right side, 
right? And you become too committed to that to check those assumptions, which means that anytime something comes along that's inconsistent, you try and twist it to make it true, right? And everybody does this to some extent. It's normally not a terrible thing. Um, but if you start with an assumption that's fundamentally flawed, you can end up in bizarre places, right? That's often how sort of cult sorts of systems work, right? They get you to commit to something being true. And then once you've committed to that, you can progressively commit to more and more absurd things because you've started with this unquestionable assumption. Right? Yeah, could and, you talk a little bit about, uh, about you mentioned a sort of cult thinking and there's this super interesting pattern that tends to occur when when sort of these doomsday scenarios play out and the date passes it's, it's one would argue it, it it's it's counterintuitive to most people could could you talk a little bit about uh, about what we what we've seen uh from the evidence of these like doomsday cults and what happens when the uh the predictions don't come true well there's the famous uh there's the famous story um, that Leon Festinger wrote about in way back in the 1950s about this doomsday cult, which had expected the you know the aliens to arrive at precisely midnight on a certain date, and the leader of the cult had, had, had prophesied it, and everybody was expecting it, and then it, of course it didn't happen. Uh, and um, you know there are uh, different accounts of what happened here, but Festinger had actually apparently joined the cult somehow or infiltrated it and was there and and saw what how people responded. And said they, you know, instead of like, uh, you know, getting upset and wailing and so on, they were just sort of like, you know, motionless and still and, you know, and and uncertain about like how this could possibly be wrong. It didn't seem to shatter their worldview like the way you might expect. Like, it's easy to make a prediction and have it, you know, not be satisfied and then just go on, you know, go on with go on with life. Um, so uh, I think one of the interesting things. I think from our framework about the idea of cults and those kinds of organizations is that the commitment involved that makes people go down the wrong, you know, illogical, irrational roads of belief is that some human being is sort of akin to a god, you know, or a prophet in the accuracy and truth of everything they say and do. And, and once you have that commitment and you don't question that, well, then you can sort of reorganize a lot of other beliefs to be consistent with that, but then to not match reality. <laughs> Right. So um, in in one example, uh, an economist uh, actually studied a, a cult and its members and got them to participate in an economic game where they would be offered, uh, you know, a certain amount of money now, or you could wait, let's say, four weeks and get a lot more. But at that particular time, the members of this cult believed that the uh, earth was the world was going to end in, in something like two weeks. So they expressed a preference for $5 today instead of $500 four weeks from now, because what good is $500 after the world ends, but $5 today I could buy, I could buy an ice cream or something like that. So they actually put their money where, where their beliefs were. And they, they expressed that their beliefs were sincere because they turned down, you know, a massive return, um, you know, on their, on their money, on no money at all, you know, to express the belief that their, you know, that their leader had, had prophesied also. So that commitment, I think, really, as Dan said, emphasize, you know, really had quite a, a big influence on uh, all the rest of their thinking. Yeah, from the outside, their actions look kind of completely irrational and hard to believe. Why would somebody ever think to do that? But they can be completely internally consistent given that commitment, right? Once you've made that commitment, the logic all kind of can be twisted around to follow, even though from the outside, nobody would make those same sorts of decisions because it, it just doesn't seem to make sense if you don't have that commitment. It's the same, here's a more kind of less sinister 
style of commitment that leads to weird beliefs. Um, you might have heard of the Mandela effect. And mm -hmm. the idea of the Mandela effect is that at least one person firmly believed that Nelson Mandela had died in jail, right? which he didn't. He, he got out of jail and then was the president of South Africa, but had this firm belief that this had happened. And other people shared that mistaken belief. And the strong commitment was, if I remember it this way, that must be what have hap what's happened. And if you hold on to that too strongly, you have to figure out why it is that everybody else believes something else. And you can come to the conclusion that, well, I'm right. Therefore, the timeline must have split at some point and people have been erasing the wrong, you know, the, the other history, the one that I know is true. And it leads to these bizarre beliefs about the world, like that Nelson Mandela died when he didn't, or that, you know, Wyoming doesn't exist, right, is another one of these sort of Mandela effect style beliefs. Um, but it all comes down to once you have that firm, unquestioned commitment, you have to make other things consistent with it in a rational way. And that leads to a whole worldview that can be completely nutty from the outside. Yeah, it makes me think of the word identity in the sense that if you look at beliefs on a spectrum where on one end you have a super unimportant belief you know that doesn't there's not a lot of fighting or 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 clinging to that because the commitment is minimal versus something that is tied to your identity who you are you know the example of you know the the field of chiropractic for example which has limited evidence behind the the theory uh you know you can't have someone go to five years of chiropractic training and then hand them a an article that that suggests that 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 there is not a ton of evidence behind this and then expect them to change their mind on a whim it's it's you're too embedded in it right yeah, yeah you could you could have conflicting trivial beliefs, right? And not worry about it too much. But if it becomes a commitment, which is something that's so firmly held that, you know, you can't question it, that's not going to be a trivial thing. That's going to be something that's pretty central to your thinking. Or, or you you can even have conflicting somewhat non-trivial beliefs, but as long as they never conflict with each other, they're okay, right? They're, they're incompatible in a sense. Like you might believe, you know, the earth was formed a few thousand years ago by God, but you can also engage completely in science you know, that's that sort of doesn't include that as one of its axioms, because you never really have ever have to reconcile those. You can be productive in both realms without reconciling those. It's when the reconciliation has to happen that really weird things can happen. And, and you know, your identity can be so bound up in one thing that it does interfere with with all the rest. And, and logically evaluating evidence is often one of those things that sort of has to fall by the wayside, right? When you have one of those kinds of identity-based commitments, because you, you have to sort of push away the evidence that that uh, conflicts with, uh, you know, your membership in that identity group. Now, commitment kind of represents one of these, what you could call thinking patterns. In, in the book, you call them habits, uh, where it's just normal functioning that l makes you vulnerable to deception. You also talk about attention and memory and how how those uh, concepts can contribute to believing in deception. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, as soon as you start looking at, at these topics, it, it's clear that that if you understand how these ideas are intended to work in human brains, 
then it starts to make sense how you can be fooled using them. Uh, could you talk a little bit about memory and attention and how those contribute to deception? Sure. I mean, in, in this book, we we talk about what we call the habit of focus. And I think that's probably the closest um, to this principle. The idea of focus, again, it's usually something that we really need to do. We need to be able to zero in on the information we have to be efficient in how we make decisions. It usually works quite well. Um, the challenge with focus is that we tend to reason almost exclusively based on the information we have right in front of us. We, we act, as Danny Kahneman used to put it, we what, there, what we see is all there is, right? So if you don't think about the information you don't have, um, it's very easy for somebody to deceive you by just putting the right information in front of you without even necessarily lying. They could selectively give you information that would lead you to one conclusion when if you had all of the information, you'd lead to a different conclusion. So we have this tendency to kind of focus on what's right in front of us and not think about what we're not seeing. And the analogy in kind of our earlier work uh, that we wrote about in our previous book um, was the idea of inattentional blindness. So if you're really focused on one thing, you you often will not notice something unexpected that happens there. Right. And, and not to, yeah. just to clarify for the listeners, this is a uh, both of you uh, are responsible for one of the most iconic studies in social psychology. If you have not done so, uh, uh, you, you can definitely go online and, and, and perhaps go to YouTube and uh, uh, search for a gorilla study. But go ahead, I'll, I'll let you I'll let you uh, explain it in more detail. Yeah, so I mean, the, the principle is basically if you're if you're focusing your attention on something, which we do all the time, right? we have to to be effective in our in our world, we have to focus attention, and it's a good thing that we can. Just a side consequence of that is, and we sometimes won't notice something that's unexpected, and because of that consequence, um, we're often going to be unaware of things we've missed. So, if I were to show you that original video, or you can go show it to a friend, if they don't happen to see the unexpected things happening, right, and we never ask about them. They'll continue to go through life assuming that, of course, they would see something that obvious, right? Uh, we're not aware of the things we haven't seen. So focus is kind of the broadening of that principle to our just our tendency to not think about the information we don't have right in front of us. And if we don't think about it, sometimes that information is what we actually need to make a good decision. Um, so I think that's probably the clearest way that sort of, it's not so much attention, but it's attention to what's right in front of us as opposed to a, attention to things we're not we're not noticing. Chris, I don't know if you want to amplify that a little bit. Well, and, and what people trying to deceive you really excel in doing is directing your attention because they know intuitively, if not because they read our previous book or because, you know, they've studied psychology or something like that, they know intuitively that uh, what you pay attention to, you will give very high weight to in making any decision. So, you know, that's why anecdotes are so effective in advertising and marketing. Like they'll tell you like two success stories and then you'll say, wow, that's great. Two out of two, uh, you know, let's let's go for it. Um, or in, in even more complicated business pitches, right? Like you'll hear a bunch of stories about the successes of a consulting firm, like all the great engagements they had with all the great companies that you know are, you know, well, but they're not going to tell you about all the engagements they had with companies that later went out of business, right? Or all the engagements they had with companies that fired them. <laughs> Or all the engagements that were, you know, led by their partners who are now no longer at the company and so on, right? They're they're curating very, very highly the information that you focus on. And you really have to consciously think like, wait, what about the ones they're not showing me? What about all these other ones? Uh, and that's that's not easy to do. That's why you have to really make an effort to think about it and always remember that your focus is being 
you know, is being directed by by someone else in most situations where there's something at stake. There's people trying to direct your focus. The masters of this are magicians, right? They're professional deceivers, right? They're they're doing everything they can to lie to you and tell you that they're doing that. And you're doing everything you can to find their deception and you can't for the most part. But that's because they're so good at directing your attention to what they want you to focus on, the effect they're producing, as opposed to what they're doing to make that effect, the method they're using. So they don't want you to pay attention to the method. They want you to pay attention to the effect. And that's kind of the taking advantage of this limits of our ability to focus attention and our tendency to basically think about only what they've told us about, not all the things that might be happening that they didn't tell us about. Yeah, it reminds me of the, you know, the word con itself, which stands for confidence. The whole idea behind a con is that the, uh, well, I guess it's the the con and the, the John being the victim. Uh, it's it's giving confidence to the victim to, that that they understand what's what's going on. And I'm I'm interested in this idea that it, it feels it's that the idea of stories actually contributes to being fooled in the sense that we rely on them so much to understand new data, new occurrences. Um, and I, I wonder if you think that we need to sort of step back and, and reevaluate how often we use stories to understand the world, if that's if that is actually a negative force in many ways. Yeah, it's 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 got its pros and its cons, right? I mean, one, so to speak, it's cons. <laughs> um, uh, one one thing that occurs to me is that often the most interesting stories are interesting and memorable because they're precisely not representative of what happens all the time, right? So, for example, suppose I tell you the story about a guy who dropped out of college and started a software company, and it's now you know worth billions and billions of dollars, and was at one time one of the biggest companies in the world and the software is on every computer in, in the entire world and so on. And then I tell you another story about a guy who dropped out of college and his company invented the iPhone and the iPad and is the first $3 trillion company in uh, human history, I believe, as of today. And then I tell you another story, right? I could tell you like three or four good stories about the founders of the most successful companies who dropped out of college, never even finished college. And you might glean from that, that actually like the really best people don't bother with formal education, right? Forget about that, you know, just drop out and, and get rich. And in fact, there are some people who even sponsor programs for people to like skip college and just become entrepreneurs right away. But if you look at the data of all the companies that have been worth a lot of money, almost all of them, a huge, you know, a huge percentage of them were actually founded and run by college graduates. And, and even many of them, people with graduate degrees, <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, you know, with excessive formal education in some cases. So the data contradict the stories, which is why the stories are so popular. But if we only hear about the stories, nobody goes around telling other people, did you know that 270 out of the top you know, 312 companies were run by people with college degrees? Nobody's, that, that story is boring. You know, that's that's not the story that people are going to grab you. So I agree with you. Like it's it's problematic, but maybe the ethical way to do it is to try to find more representative stories that are interesting, but yet also are compatible with, you know, the underlying pattern of the data and logic. Yeah, I think there's a danger, especially in science storytelling, that people go in with a preconceived conclusion that they want to reach and then go find the handful of studies that seem to be consistent with that. And you can find claims consistent with almost any kind of conclusion you want to draw. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the evidence as a whole shows. So the real challenge in, in doing science communication 
is making sure that the message you're conveying is something that is actually supported by the overall totality of the evidence. Now, this is a nice segue into a, a, another topic that you discuss in the book a lot, which is motivated reasoning. So, you know, mentioning, you know, clinging to these, well, you mentioned a couple stories about people succeeding without college. Uh, according to what we know about motivated reasoning, individuals that have, that are sort of following that path might be more likely to bring up that story in the first place. They might, you know, more easily access that story versus all of the other, you know, counter examples. Uh, and you mentioned that this motivated reasoning also can cause people to uh, evaluate evidence differently based on whether it's for or against something that we, we're already thinking. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that uh, about that evidence that that uh, demonstrates that we are more critical when we evaluate uh, others' views? Well, there's a couple of really neat studies along these lines that show that um, even when the problem at hand is just evaluating whether one statement logically follows from another statement, basically solving simple logic problems like all all uh, all dogs are mammals you know, uh, Charlie's a dog, is Charlie a mammal, right? We're pretty good at those, right? Those are very simple logical statements. When they get a little bit more complex, we get a little bit worse at them. But when you replace these sort of value neutral concepts like taxonomies of animals and so on with things like the president's advisors being socialists or, you know, uh, climate change or something like that, um, people find it hard to come to logical conclusions that are opposite their beliefs or that contradict with their beliefs or their expectations based on what they know about the world. Um, so you could call that a form of motivated reasoning and that people actually are uh, find uh, you know logical reasoning, accurate logical reasoning hard when it contradicts of what they already believe. There's some other interesting work that shows that people will uh, evaluate um, you know numeric, results, let's say, of studies or something like that, like you might see in a, a little um, newspaper article or something, um, much more critically if the study comes to a conclusion that they don't like, or for example, that's opposite their political party's uh, platform or their what their ideology predicts. So conservatives who are shown evidence that uh, gun control leads to fewer uh, murders might try to pick that apart and come up with all kinds of reasons why that might not be true. Often you will hear people pull out correlation is not causation, you know, whenever that helps their argument, whenever that helps their side be right, you know, whereas liberals might have difficulty um, uh, evaluate, might have difficulty uh, uh, evaluating evidence that suggests that global warming is not so bad, for example, um, because that's not really what they believe, right? So a study like that, they might really start picking it apart, you know, and uh, and so on. Whereas a study, a terrible study that says global warming is, you know, is, is, is a, you know, is a scourge, even if it's a terrible study, they'll say, yep, that's exactly right. Great study, right? So it's that kind of motivation, right, that can interfere with the uh, objective evaluation of evidence. And it, it's, you know, for some things, it doesn't matter. But for a lot of things, it does like, but what about masks and vaccines and all the COVID stuff, right? That became like a, you know, a sea of motivated reasoning sort of as, as time as time went on. Even even taking a stepping step back from motivated reasoning, just as a source of errors, you know, looking for what you expect and thinking more critically about things that you didn't expect, um, even if it's not sort of a deliberate attempt to deceive, 
can be a real problem. So in the scientific literature, for example, let's say you run a nice study and the results come out exactly the way you predicted, right? Are you going to go and double check and make sure each participant was assigned to the right condition in your data file? Are you going to look for you know errors in your equations that you use to calculate right. the outcome measures? You might, but probably not as much as you would if the outcome were exactly the opposite of what you predicted, right? So even if there's no sort of deliberate attempt to deceive, the kinds of things that are misleading and make it out into the world are going to be the ones that are more consistent. Right? So as, as one example, there was a, a figure that was posted, uh, published in a uh, Wall Street Journal um, about time to infection for different sorts of prevention measures of using masks. So this was in the COVID era, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, there were lots of claims about the effectiveness of different kinds of masks. And this was a graph table that was just showing the time to infection with different kinds of masks, if one person and the other person were both wearing them, or if just one was. Um, and the claim was that if you wear really good masks, the hours that you're protected from infection are much, much greater if both people are wearing them than if neither person is wearing them. Right. But the problem with it was that it actually made no sense at all, right? From a, from a numeric perspective, it was literally just multiplying the 15 minute sort of contact tracing exposure limit by the filtration of the masks. So there was actually no data involved in this other than just what's the filtration of this mask. And people who really believed firmly that masking is good shared this without thinking critically about it. Right? And I, I saw this shared by colleagues who are really methodologically very sophisticated, but because it was consistent with what they believed and with what I believed at the time and still do, um, they shared it right? without thinking critically about the fact that it's actually just gibberish. Right? There, there was no substance to it. And that's because they, you know, when it's consistent with what you want to believe, hey, better masks, better protection, which is absolutely true. Um, they didn't think about the numbers that were used to support that claim. Right? And that that makes it very easy to kind of get something passed and, and reshared in a way that ends up being deceptive. In so, order for these numbers to have in order for these numbers to have made sense, it would have to be the case that you know, you and I could stand six feet apart in the middle of the pandemic and talk to each other for 15 minutes and have zero chance or 14 minutes and 59 seconds and have zero right. chance of, of either of us transmitting COVID to the other. But if we stayed there for 15 minutes and one second, suddenly there would be a chance that we would no, pass yeah, COVID to each other. Yeah. 100% and, and, chance. So right. and, just, and that's not how it works, right? That's not right. how that 15 minute rule worked, but they, they took that 15 minute thing and like multiplied it throughout. So it, it's, it's absurd once you think about it, it's based on a totally faulty premise but since it was satisfying to you know to people's yeah. ex existing beliefs, they didn't think about that. They would have found exactly that mistake if it had been like scientific paper that contradicted their own scientific theories, right? Then they would have been all over it. You know, they would right. have been looking for that right away. And Vast difference within the same person, right? Within yeah. the same person. Yeah. So people people are rational about these sorts of things. It's just they're not as critical when it's not when it is consistent with their views. The fifteen minute thing, by the way, was just the time limit that the CDC and other organizations set for how much exposure you'd need before doing contact tracing. And the reason for that was you can't set that to 30 seconds because 30 seconds, if you run across people in the hallway for a second, you walk past them, you can't do contact tracing for people you happen to encounter for a few seconds. But if you talk to somebody or in the room with them for 15 minutes, you have a chance of being able to track track it down. So it's a completely arbitrary, non-biological principle. It's a convenience thing. There was nothing about infection at all, but it got turned into this hours of protection metric, which didn't actually make any sense. Now, these stories, 
kind of relate to something that you talk a lot about in the book, which is um, how people interpret numbers, how people interpret statistics, and how there, there is sort of, it's very easy to be deceived when you interpret or when you present statistics. Um, you know, those stories make me extremely, extremely skeptical around this idea of we need to empower people, the average person, to be better understanders of numbers. And what I mean by that is if, you know, I'm worried that by, by sort of convincing the average person that if I hand you a book on uh, you know, statistics, for example, statistics for the average person. And you read that book. What I'm worried about is that now by reading that book, you feel empowered that you can understand any scientific paper that comes across your lap. It's kind of like the same example would be what happens in medicine with Google. You know, if you empower people to take health into their own hands, that you know, now they, they go on WebMD, they do some research. Now I can talk to my doctor and have a 50-50 conversation. I don't know if you share that same skepticism around this idea of, of you know, handing people a little bit of training in numbers and statistics and, and, and having positive expectations. Uh, uh, do, you do you share that skepticism or, or do you think it's, it's a positive force we need to be doing it? Well, you have to remember you're dealing, you're talking to two professors here. So getting us to say that teaching people things is bad might be might be a hard <laughs> sell. However, I do have some sympathy with your point. I don't think it's made worse by giving people more books about statistics. I think it's sort of an inherent, you know, an inherent tendency to think that, you know, if if we understand enough about math, we can we can analyze numbers. If we understand enough about statistics, we can analyze numbers, and people will put that to use you know, with whatever training they have, whether it came from, you know, an additional book or something like that. The example that comes to mind is um, there is a recent uh, scandal about possible cheating in the world of chess. Uh, and uh, there, a player was accused of having cheated in a game against the world champion. And then people started looking at his previous games and downloading games from internet databases and running them through computer algorithms and counting up the number of this, that, and the other thing. And you could construct any number of arguments to make whatever case you wanted. So if you believe that he was cheating, you could find stuff in the data to support that. If you believed he wasn't cheating, you could find some stuff, you know, to, to support that. And there was a lot of bad analysis going on and so on. But I wouldn't blame that on teaching people about statistics or giving them more books about, you know, how to think about numbers and so on. I do tend to believe that those are, those are good things. I think what people need is um, more humility about the amount of knowledge they've actually acquired. Like the problem is not that they're acquiring knowledge. The problem is that they don't know how much knowledge they've acquired and how much they have have yet to learn, right? You know, like a, a moment's pause might lead you to believe that a statistics professor does like six years of statistics training to get a PhD, not one book, you know? So there's, there's farther you can go, you know, to really understand what's going on. You have some benefit from what you learn, but you're not the expert yet. I think that's what people really need to know is like the meta knowledge about what their own knowledge really amounts to. And I'd like to amplify that as well. I'm not sure that handing people statistics books is necessarily going to solve any of these problems, right? There, there are plenty of statistically very savvy people who make really bad mistakes when it's consistent with what they want to believe, right? So having a PhD in statistics doesn't guarantee that you're not going to make silly claims. 
right? Um, the, the really interesting thing here is when we don't realize when we're being critical and when we're not, right? So we tend to think we're being very insightful and critical in supporting our own beliefs when that means being able to very effectively tear down somebody else's arguments um, that we disagree with. And people are good at that, right? So even if they don't have statistical training, if you give somebody evidence that contradicts them, they can dig in, right? And if you give evidence that is consistent, they don't tend to, right? So in the example Chris just gave of the chess cheating, like, yeah, if you thought the guy is a cheater, you'll be able to do some pretty clever things. Even if you don't have any statistical training at all, you could probably dig in and try and think of the reasons why you're suspicious of him. You'll find evidence, um, you'll gather it all up, and you won't think about the evidence that is exonerating, right? So that's that's the bigger issue is that we don't tend to apply whatever critical faculties we have, whether they're expert or novice, we don't tend to apply them to things that we agree with. We tend to apply them to things we disagree with. Um, so it can lead to problems in healthcare and things like that when people think that they understand something at a deep level and don't recognize they lack expertise. Um, that happened a ton in the early days of COVID when you had people who really had no idea what they were doing um, posting their takes, you know, and there were plenty of hot takes that were not based on real science or evidence, um, but they didn't know how to maybe think critically. Your, maybe your beef is more with critical thinking training. Maybe there needs to be more self-critical thinking training or something like that so that people apply the same level of criticism or try to at least right to their own side as well as to the other side. Maybe that's the problem is a critical thinking is like a weapon, you know, a cudgel as opposed to something for, you know, for insight. Well, it's it, what's interesting is I, I would agree that that it's not necessarily the statistical training that's the issue. It's the confidence that is built up falsely from a little bit of of reading a little you know an article here and there a book here and there yeah uh, and it seems as though people develop that confidence much faster than they get to the point of sort of a formal training in critical thinking and that's when you get you know that's when you get social media now any sort of political discussion is sort of laden with this overconfidence in one's ability to critically examine evidence and it 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 also doesn't feel like uh, you know as as your book mentions um you know in the discussion of uh, of some of these biases it's like well this is you know this is something that everyone else does right it's something that everyone else does i'm not doing it i'm explaining to you why you're ex demonstrating confirm confirmation bias right yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a theme that we talked about in our in our previous book called the illusion of knowledge, right? Which uh, is that people tend to think from from very super superficial information that they have a deep understanding. Right? So, if you and it's sometimes referred to as the illusion of explanatory depth, and the idea is if you ask people how something if they understand how something works, they'll say, "Oh yeah, I know how that works." Um, but if you then ask them just one or two more questions, they really have no idea, right? And it can fall apart really quickly. Um, so if you ask people how a toilet works, for example, do you know how a toilet works? And most people say, oh yeah. And then you ask them, okay, what causes the bowl to empty? Right? And if it's not right in front of them and they can't play with it, they probably don't know, right? What causes it to refill? How does that happen? Um, what turns out is they know how to work a toilet. They don't know how a toilet works, right? So that illusion of explanatory depth comes in, in a lot of these cases where you read one article or you read one story and think you have a deep understanding when you actually don't. And part of it is that we're not asking ourselves those additional questions to see whether we really do understand or not. We're not 
probing unless it's something that's inconsistent with our beliefs. Then we then we push. I would add that that kind of overconfidence in our own knowledge that you've been alluding to also does make us vulnerable to deception. So in some of the cases that we looked at while working on the book, we found people who were, you know, men of action, as it were, like business leaders, you know, who were used to making quick decisions and they had been right a lot of the time, or at least they felt as though they had been right a lot of the time. They were successful. They had gotten rich. And they, in many cases, were vulnerable to sort of big cons if someone could figure out, you know, exactly the right way to approach them and what to appeal to. These guys could wire, these guys could wire lots of money right away, you know, if they really thought it was a good, you know, a good deal. So it's kind of hard to get those guys, but you can get them for a lot of money, right? If you're if you're the con artist with the right approach. And, and part of what their problem was was they sort of trusted their intuition too much, their instincts, and they were overconfident. And maybe they maybe they thought they're they maybe they thought they were experts in reading people you know, and in making quick decisions and so on. And they just had uh, a, a false sense of that because they had gotten lucky quite a bit in their in their careers to have, you know, to have uh, made the right decision at the right time. And that just inflated their, their, their sense of the ability to do that again. So let's pivot a little bit. We've talked about sort of the inner workings of the mind and how uh, these patterns of thinking can contribute to being vulnerable to deception. Uh, but your book is also full of these big, rich stories of large-scale cons as well. Um, could either of you give uh, one of your favorite examples, uh, perhaps one that, that the average person might not be aware of, of sort of a well-executed uh, large-scale con and, and, and how it might demonstrate some of the principles that you talk about? Um, I think a good example is... Uh, and the, an example I like to work with is the is the Bernie Madoff example. Now, everybody's heard of Bernie Madoff. So the average person knows about Bernie Madoff headline. You know, there's movies about him, but I don't think the average person actually knows how it all worked. They know that he had the world's biggest Ponzi scheme, sixty five billion dollars. Uh, he went to jail and, and so on. But how did he actually do that? So that's sort of part of what we try to we try to explain. Um Actually, of all of these habits and hooks that we talk about in the book, what Bernie Madoff did relied on several of them. And any like large, long-running con that takes a lot of money, has a lot of victims, can't be based on just one particular cognitive foible or habit or you know appealing proposition. It's got to be based on a lot of things. So I will try to sort of tick off a, a, a few of them. And by the way, of course, we're not saying Bernie Madoff knew about all these things or thought consciously about them. He was just pretty good at finding things that worked and sort of automating them, turning them into a business process, as it were. He actually had a whole office full of people who were executing this, this scheme. Um, he was the front man for it, but there was a whole office full of people that nobody, you know, almost nobody's ever heard of who were actually executing it. One of the main points that he relied on was the consistency, uh, the appeal of consistency. So instead of offering people 50% return on their investment right away, he gave them 8 to 12% every year for a long time. So it was kind of like a treasury bill, but with a much higher rate of return, almost, you know, it felt like it was as trustworthy. Uh, and um, familiarity was a key thing there. So we tend to find familiar people, familiar ideas, familiar sources of information, more trustworthy and credible. And Bernie Madoff was uh, a well-known name in the finance industry. He'd been around for a long time. He'd been running a legitimate business for decades. He was the chair of the NASDAQ stock market, which was one of the two biggest stock markets in, in, the, in the US. And he was well known, especially in 
um, Jewish philanthropy circles in New York City and Florida. So a lot of people who invested with him knew of him through those circles or for friends of friends or cousins and so on. So he exploited this familiarity as well. Also, um, he uh, did take advantage of people's tendency um, not to ask a lot of questions when the proposition seemed appealing. So we all hear about the victims of Madoff's uh, you know, scam. There were people who he tried to get to invest when he really needed money to pay out, you know, to pay out people who would, you know, who, who were already who were already in to pay out to people who were already in. Um, but they didn't invest. And part of the reason for that was that they took the time to actually ask for some more evidence that he was actually managing this money, that he was the strategy he was using, could do what he said it would do. And they didn't get good answers. They walked away. But a lot of people made decisions much too quickly based on superficial uh, kinds of information. And this is what really sort of floors me sometimes is that there's definitely a trade-off between overthinking everything um, and making decisions you need to get through life, but giving all your money or a substantial fraction of your money to a single person to manage is one of those times when you really need to slow down and ask more questions <laughs> and gather more information and so on. And so many people didn't do it in this case. Um, they just heard about this guy and they wanted to get in and they were begging for it, basically. And there, there are others. There are many other, uh, many other examples of habits and hooks that Madoff took advantage of. But that's part of how he was able to keep it running for so long. Um, he really exploited a lot of these different elements that we talk about. You see some of those same elements showing up in other areas like crypto, right? That people really want to get in on it, and they so they'll invest because they've heard of other people making money on it, and they don't stop to think, do I actually understand how blockchain works? Do I really understand whether this company is actually keeping my money separate from other investments? Um, you know, or could it actually just be a scam, which a lot of them may be? Um, you know, it, it's the same sort of principles that we tend to be a little bit, you know, cognitively lazy at times when it actually really matters. And we shouldn't be that efficient if you're if you're taking something that could be a big risk. So one of the things that those investors who walked away from Madoff probably did was said, okay, I don't get a good enough answer here. That means I shouldn't take the chance. They kind of anticipate at least maybe not formally, but informally, they anticipate what could go really wrong here, right? They think about if, if this isn't genuine, I could lose everything, right? And the people who don't invest in crypto without really understanding it, probably are thinking that too. It's like, okay, you know, Am I sure I know how this works? And if I don't, you know, then maybe I should stay away. Right. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's heard the, the the mantra. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, obviously, the hard part is um, is is sort of the the application, you know, being able in the right state of mind to do that. Um, why don't we wrap up by talking about uh, you know, let's step back a little bit. And what are some practical ways, practical things to keep in mind, to think to yourself uh, in order to avoid uh, being a victim of some sort of deception? Well, it depends on the kind of deception. But let's let's talk about this in the context of the big deceptions that we've, we've just been uh, discussing. You know, one thing to think about is to kind of do that sort of pre-mortem, think about what could go really badly wrong here, and then ask questions to see if that's likely, right? So we have this tendency to think, you know, it's it's socially awkward to ask more questions, 
um, often you don't need to ask much. It's often just one more question, like, could this be a scam? Right? And if it were, what would be the signs? How would I find out? Right? Just that, that extra step and remaining uncertain a little bit longer can, can go a long way to making sure you don't fall for something really big. Um, another thing you can do is have somebody else take a look at it independently. Right? So if you are convinced that this is a great idea, ask somebody who doesn't have any stake in it right, to take a look at it. And often they'll take a different view of it. They, they haven't gotten the sales pitch. They might look at it and say, really? And just them kind of doubting you for a moment can sometimes get you to think a little bit more carefully. Um, Another thing to think about is like how much investigating should you do, right? So it should probably be calibrated to what's at stake somehow, or perhaps to how much effort someone else would take to scam you if it really was a scam. So in the case of Madoff, coming, coming back to that again, he was getting millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions from some people. Um, or, or, or other funds, you know, other uh, hedge funds and so on. Um, so he might do a lot to convince them that he was really running a, a legitimate hedge fund. And in fact, he did. He came up with fake computer displays that made it look like he was, you know, that he had money in these various accounts. He printed out fake statements every month for years and years and sent people these, these printouts and so on. He spent a lot of money. He paid his employees ridiculous salaries to sort of keep them in on it. So he was investing a lot in this. And if you think about how much someone would spend to con you, then you can think about how much more you need to investigate. So one one easy way to put this into practice is, you know, instead of accepting only the information that someone else gives you, look for other sources of information, right? Even if like, you know, call, you know, look up their phone number online or in some other source and call that phone number instead of the phone number that they left on your voicemail or that they emailed you. Right. Because they may be giving you sort of like a Potemkin, you know, version of, of reality. Like, yes, you call this number and they'll answer it and say, you know, and, and they'll say Goldman Sachs, you know, but that might not be the real Goldman Sachs. You know, why don't you look up Goldman Sachs's phone number and call that and see if you can find the same people at the other end of the line? I mean, I'm not I, I picked the name Goldman Sachs at random. I have no idea of any scams involving Goldman Sachs, just to be clear. But uh you know, if if it were if it were really a high finance scam, right? Someone might impersonate Goldman Sachs and try to get you to send money, right? That wouldn't be unheard of. You even know, a so low finance do, scam. Yeah, even a yeah. low finance scam. People, you know, <laughs> one of the, the standard phishing stuff is to send you links to change your banking information, right? To adjust your banking information. You click it, and then you enter your password, and suddenly they have your password, and it wasn't actually your bank. It was a spoofed site. So that's just a general principle. Never click on a link in an email to and enter your password as a result of it, right? Always just go directly to the site. Never call the number that's given to you in an email from a financial institution if they could take your money. Instead, just you know, look at the back of your card or look up the bank online and call that number. That's just a, a simple way to prevent something that could be catastrophic, right? And be well, careful it, when you type in the URL because they'll make up a fake website with misspelled versions of URLs, right? Like, you know, Bank of America you know, or something like that instead of Bank of America, you know, so you got to be careful on that too. Um, but yeah, you just think about this more, right? The more effort someone would go, you know, to, to, to take you in, right? You got to think about these things more. Well, if you want more information about how uh, all sorts of scams, both big, small, uh, and, and how, what you can do about, about them, uh, pick up, uh, the book by Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabri. Uh, again, it's called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. Thank you, gentlemen, for being on today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having on. It was a fun conversation. Yeah, thanks. That was great. 
on the topic of deception, please grab a copy of Dan and Chris's new book, Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It, wherever books are sold. Also, check out some other episodes of this podcast related to the topic of deception, such as episode 14, The Illusion of Psychic Ability, episode 15 on rational thinking, and episode 19, The Psychology of Magic. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question Why Do We Do That? Mm-hmm.